0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: The young, shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality, and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun.
2: Community or chaos,
0: we can construct and nurture community Or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society.
1: Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quaker's Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz.
2: Good day, friends. Today we have Chris Trotter, a political commentator who writes a column in the Herald called From the Left and who is the author of a book called No Left Turn, A Political History of New Zealand. We'll be talking about the change of leadership at the top of the Labour Party and in Parliament today. Good morning, Chris. How are you?
1: Good morning, Marvin, and I, I must correct you, I am a columnist for your very own Otago Daily Times. I think the idea of Chris Trotter being a columnist in the Herald would send NZME into um, uh, Pink fits. Oh, sorry uh, about that. So, so it's the ODT that I write for, well, not, was, well, not I, the Herald. <laughs>
2: well, I read that most Fridays. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to community Your chaos, and you can listen to Chris again. Hey, Chris, uh, what was your first reaction on the news of Jacinda Ardern's retirement, and why do you think she retired when she did?
1: Oh, it came as um, a God Almighty shock. Uh, the uh, The word came through from. Francesca, my wife, uh, who had had seen a tweet uh, from one of the uh, stuff journalists, uh, and uh, she rang me, and uh, I was suitably flabbergasted, and uh, and I, I flicked over um, to the news feeds, and sure enough, about thirty seconds later, it uh, it was all over the uh, the, the news. Uh, and uh, she, was, she was going. Um, I, w- I was shocked uh, to hear it um, because I think people always are. Somebody who has made such a deep impact on a, on a country as, as Jacinda, um, her decision to depart um, is always going to leave it rather um, shocked and, and in many cases saddened although uh, it's true to say uh, that many people were delighted to hear the news. Um, and that, of course, once I thought about it, uh, you know, struck me as not entirely surprising um, because she had gone from saint to sinner in a remarkably short space of time in the minds of many New Zealanders. Uh, but also she had unleashed um, political forces which I believe she did not have the stomach to, to fight uh, or, or to restrain, shall we say.
2: Did she unleash them or were they bound to happen?
1: No, I think it was very much a case of, of Jacinda uh, being a person of um, goodwill, especially on matters uh, relating to Māori-Pākehā relations. I mean, she's at Ratana this morning, and uh, she went there in 2018, uh, only, only just elected uh, New Zealand's prime minister, um, a few weeks before, and she was full of promises and and undertakings. She demanded that Maori hold her to account. Uh, she she openly acknowledged the need, you know, for for change. So she certainly allowed the idea to grow in the minds of many Maori that that here was uh, a regime which might move the dial forward by quite a lot. Uh, and that was, was when it began. But of course, for the first three years, uh, there was Winston Peters I was standing there with his hand poised over the handbrake. Um, unwilling to see uh, um, very much at all uh, advanced uh, along the Maori nationalist line in any case. He, along with Shane Jones and the Maori caucus, it must be said, led by by Willie Jackson, extracted a, a colossal amount of money um, from the Sixth Labour Government um, I'm told that over the five years of this government's um, term in office, uh, something mm-hmm. approaching $3 billion uh, has been spent um, uh, on, on, on Maori causes, uh, dealing with Maori issues. Now, that is roughly um, twice, if not three times, what uh, has been allocated as a result of the Treaty settlement process. Uh, so Maori have done extremely well under this government, but uh, I think the real the real problems began um, with the commissioning of their mm. report, the Hapurpur report, which, 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 which nobody which nobody told anybody about. Um, there was that. And then, of course, there was the the extraordinary victory of 2020 where Labour won a majority in its own right. And and justifiably so, because Jacinda's leadership through the first uh, nine or ten months of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, was just stellar and and rightly recognised as such uh, around the world. Uh, so she she was duly rewarded um, by the New Zealand electorate, um, and if you recall, Marvin, she said at the time, you know, with this huge uh, vote of confidence she had received and the massive majority she had she had won, um, that she wanted New Zealanders to know that she was going to be governing for all of them. That she realised many people had voted for the Labour Party for the first time. Um, either the first time ever or the first time in a long time. Uh, and uh, she understood that um, change uh, had to be with broad consent because there was absolutely no point in passing a whole swathe of, of regu- uh, regulations or, or, or laws um, if when the government changed they were all simply going to be revoked or repealed um all good advice all very worthy sentiments for a democratically elected government to espouse but um, very very promptly forgotten uh, and uh, the the speed at which some policies were being advanced uh, really uh, was was beyond the the tolerance of, of many voters Uh Then there was the whole second act of of COVID, which was nowhere near as um, inspiring as the first act. Uh, Combine those together and you got this sudden shift in attitudes towards the prime minister um, from a pretty substantial minority of the population. Uh, And I think um, she went and had a good long think over her summer break, and decided that she just didn't have the stomach for the fight that would ensue, uh, both within the Labour Party itself and and across society generally, uh, if there was to be um, uh, use of the handbrake again in relation to some some policies. And so she. She was pretty sure I think that, that uh, Chris Hipkins would be her replacement. Um, he's even admitted that you know he had a conversation in which this possibility was raised um, around about Christmas uh, last year. Uh, and, and so it has, has transpired in an absolutely perfect transition of power. I can't think of a more a painless and seamless transition as the one that has just taken place. Uh, Very disciplined, um, extremely well executed. Uh, And now we shall see um, if Chris Hipkins um, is willing to apply the handbrake.
2: What accounts for, or could you assess her five years in a general way?
1: Well, as I've said, I mean, her handling of... um, First of all, uh, the shocking um, massacre in in Christchurch, uh, and then of the uh, of the pandemic, at, at least in the Delta phase of of the pandemic, the Delta variant of the COVID nineteen virus, um, which which uh, New Zealand's actions. Um, proved uh, to be uh, quite uh, extraordinary in, in, in saving lives I mean up until the arrival of the uh, Omicron um, variant um, the uh, the death toll was, was extremely low something like 26 I think when she went to the polls in, in 2020 um, but uh yeah, the, the the second act wasn't anything like as as uh, inspiring as 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 the first act what uh, she taught but, but but she she had a she had a, a wonderful instinct for how to handle these these uh, extraordinary events these these events that came out of left field um, whether from nature in the form of a pandemic or or from uh, the extremes, uh, as was the case with Brendan Tarrant and and the Christchurch mosque attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was less adroit um, in the day-to-day mm-hmm. uh, business of politics. I think people will remember her in that way. I, th- I
2: have but, a friend who's um, uh, said to me that she's a Great leader in a crisis, but not such a great prime minister.
1: Well, I think that's a fairly um, succinct summary, actually. Um, if by prime minister uh, a, is meant
2: policy and everyday, yeah, peaceful, yeah, right?
1: a person who presides over the day-to-day um, running of of a government. Uh, I think that's pretty fair. Um, I think her, her problem was that. Um, She had a great uh, respect for expertise, uh, which meant that she tended to place tremendous faith in the advice of her officials, um, and her officials uh, were um, almost to a person um, neoliberal in their outlook, which is hardly surprising since neoliberalism has been the the ideology um, of the New Zealand public service and just about every aspect of New Zealand life uh, for the best part of 40 years now. Um, and I think Jacinda herself subscribes largely to the at least the economic um, uh, ideas well, that's
2: uh, the basis of, of, of
1: neoliberalism. And it, so, it affects,
2: and it affects everything you do because if you can't raise taxes, you can't do much in policy.
1: Well, that's right, and and um, and because she had faith in these officials uh, and and in their their views about the way the economy should be run, uh, and because she was unwilling to challenge those officials um, or to embark on a, a course of action which uh, they would not support. Um, some of the big promises she made and she made some absolutely colossal promises at the beginning of her prime ministership I mean she talked about transforming New Zealand society um, she and and, and Grant Robertson even um, gave speeches suggesting that they, they might be um, abandoning neoliberalism although that turned out to be more rhetorical than, than real um, but you see, there was no rule book for um, a terrorist attack on a couple of mosques in Christchurch. There was no rule book um, for uh, a global pandemic. There hadn't been such a pandemic for over 100 years. Um, so, when she didn't have a rule book and when she was able, because there was an emergency, Um, to, in a sense, concentrate the power in her own hands, and and when that that power was was given to her of necessity, um, especially when COVID was raging around the world, um, and all of the rules were thrown aside, I mean, that's when she really came into her own. Um, And one of the things which I think the Labour Party failed to grasp was that one of the reasons she was so popular, one of the reasons um, people rallied behind the government so strongly was precisely because the government had taken all the reins of power into its hands, that it was demanding of the public service, of the business community, of the trade unions, of all of us that we act together in solidarity for our own um, protection and for the protection of our loved ones and our broader society. Now, that's a very socialist thing to do. Um, And it's notable that in other countries such a response was not forthcoming. You look at the way Boris Johnson or Donald Trump handled the COVID-19 pandemic and you see a very, very different picture. So the one time, the one time that Jacinda behaved like a socialist prime minister, she was never more popular. And for, um, for reasons that, that elude me, um, she did not learn the lesson that, that acting uh, together in solidarity um, as a community um, caring for everyone, letting no no person fall behind, um, is an immensely popular way to govern, <laughs> and she got herself an absolute majority for her trouble, um, and then proceeded to squander it on things like free waters.
2: Well, um. What do you think of Chris Hitchens? I know you weren't surprised that he was—he got the,
0: the leadership. Well,
1: I mean, the, the, there was a, another element of surprise on the day that Jacinda announced her retirement, and that was um, Grant Robertson's um, ruling himself out as his successor. Now, Grant Robertson had told the Labour Party and New Zealand that having tried twice um, to become the leader of the Labour Party and being defeated on both occasions, although it's only fair to point out that he lost to Andrew Little um, by the narrowest of margins, less than 1% um, difference between his vote and uh, and Andrew Little's vote. So it was a very close-run thing for Andrew Little. But after that defeat, he said he wouldn't stand for leader of the Labour Party again, and he was as good as his word. He he ruled himself out. He, he he gave a fairly strong hint that he thought he should remain as finance minister, and I'll be surprised if Chris Hipkins doesn't keep him exactly where he is. Um, but everybody, you know, meaning the political class, all the commentators, the media, whatnot. I think assumed that if, you know, Jacinda had been hit by the proverbial bus, that Grant would be the man who replaced her. But um, Grant decided that no, he would not be um, uh, prime minister. I think if he had wanted to be, he most certainly would have been. But he he decided again it, which really only left Chris Hipkins.
2: What would would that have been good for the Labor Party or not?
1: if Grant Robinson had stepped up. Uh, That's an interesting question. Um,
2: I mean, he's more, he's certainly more attached to neoliberalism. He's certainly also been around as uh, both a politician and as a bureaucrat in a certain sense for a long time.
1: Well, yes. I think it's important for people to understand Uh, that um, Grant Robertson, Jacinda Ardern, and Chris Hipkins uh, constituted uh, a triumvirate of of sorts in the Labour Party. Um, They all had a rather similar background in terms of
2: Going up through uh, the university, well, politics. yes, yes,
1: both, 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 Grant Robertson and and uh, Chris Hipkins were were former student leaders. Uh, Jacinda wasn't, but what they all had in common was that they all worked in the beehive together at roughly the same time. And I think Grant worked uh, for Michael Cullen. Uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, worked for. Um, uh, Helen Clark and Tippy, uh, uh, as he is affectionately known, um, worked for Trevor Mallard. Although they, they, I think they all um, ended up at one time or another in Helen Clark's um, circle. Um, so, in a sense, these three um, politicians um, were bearers of the. What, what Matt McCartan, um, a former uh, you know, a president of the Alliance and then later a chief of staff um, under David Cunliffe and, and Andrew Little in the Labour Party, what he calls the Clarkists. Um, and the, in a sense, they were carrying that whole tradition of the nine years of, of Helen Clark's leadership from 1999 to 2008. They were carrying it forward Um and, of course, they all came into Parliament at the same time. Uh, the 2008 general elections saw them into Parliament together. And they led the fight against virtually everybody <laughs> who, who was put up to lead the Labour Party before Jacinda finally um, uh, uh, became uh, the leader. Uh, they uh, were... Hostile to Phil Goff's attempt to reposition um, uh, Labor as 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 a less um, less treaty-driven um, uh, party, uh, I think it was Grant Robertson that led the fight against uh, Phil Goff's nationhood speech. The very title of the speech, um, identical to. Um, uh, Don Brash's famous nationhood speech at the O'Riwa Rotary Club, calling your, your speech and um, nationhood was was um, always a bit provocative. Anyway, um, uh, Goff was was shot down on on that occasion, um, and Shearer and then Cunliffe um, they they were seen off, um, and and finally um, Andrew Little uh was seen off and and the clarkists um were were in um jacinda um was uh, uh was the the leader um grant was was tipped for finance minister which is the second most powerful position in the land um and uh and chippy was there as well and and now of course um he's our prime minister um, so that's there's continuity there from that that period under Helen Clark and Michael Cullen, um, right through um, uh, until today, uh, and 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 even with Jacinda's departure. I mean, they are still there um, in the form of, of Chris Hipkins and and uh, Grant Robertson. So uh, that's that's an important little aspect of of what's happening to bear in mind there's no real break um, the only possible moment of a break uh, was under David Cunliffe and uh, among David Cunliffe's most relentless uh, political enemies was um, a young fellow called Chris Hipkins. so, so there we are um, it's 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 in in no sense is a a major break uh, with with what has gone before.
2: I'm going to play a song and come back to this.
0: He's a walking, talking lie in a banker's suit and tie. Just a cowboy on the lone prairie. He says he's your saddle pal. Put your stock in his corral, but he'll steal your horse before he takes his feet He's driving cattle in his sleep The herd's a half a million deep And the trail ahead's as pretty as you please But to the stockyards they will go For their final rodeo While the campfire smoke blows soft It's time to get along, little doggies, and move that rounder's money up the line. And when the sun sets on the trail, and you hear that closing bell, you can still pretend Well, I guess we'll never know We trust in God when we put it all in trust Now it's time to get along, little doggies And move that rounder's money up the line when the sun sets on the trail And you hear that closing bell You can still pretend that you're a friend of mine You can still pretend that you're a friend of mine Yogley, oh, gogley,
2: Hi, Chris. Uh, were you able to hear that?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I was looking out my window expecting to see a, a, a vast dust cloud blowing my way across the, uh, mm-hmm. across the American prairie. <laughs> uh, he's,
2: uh, uh, John Ingenius is a uh, Western uh, country singer who's now residing in Dunedin, and he wrote that song in um, When the Sun Sets on the Trail about banking.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, and, and, the, and the finest Okie tradition, absolutely.
2: <laughs> well, wait, Okie's had a real reason for hating bankers, and I don't think it's changed that much. So only it's homeowners that have to worry about bankers now, not well, just Well, indeed,
1: indeed, indeed. Although every time someone rails against bankers, I'm always binded. Of the scene in, I think it's *The Grapes of Wrath* by uh, by John Steinbeck. You know, where uh, Tom Joad or whoever it is is is, uh, is is telling us about the farmer who, who who confronts the sheriff. You know, who's come to enforce the bank's foreclosure notice on his farm, and uh, the sheriff just says, "Well, you know, you can shoot me, but that just means that." that uh, the state police will will turn up on your doorstep and i suppose you could shoot them but then the national guard would turn up on your doorstep and and uh and and you could you could try and shoot the banker in town but he he's just acting on behalf of the banker's back in new york <laughs> and i wouldn't recommend trying to trying to shoot any of them um it, it, making the uh, very good point that it's the system uh, that that you're fighting uh, not 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 yeah. people or or not well, not, not your not your local bank manager well
2: the grapes of wrath was clearer about more clear about that than recent movies and so on we don't usually attack the system anymore
1: well no that's yeah. true that's true although um i must say that uh that uh um Bruce Springsteen uh, wrote a magnificent song um, talking about the ghost of
0: Tom well, Joe, I've got that. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, very,
1: very good song. In
2: fact, I play it occasionally. So, but uh, so you see, Chris is in line with uh, <clears throat> Grant Robinson and Helen Clark, and not really going to promote any changes in direction.
1: Well, no significant changes in direction. Um, And, of course, one of the real differences uh, between um, uh, Helen Clark and Jacinda Ardern as prime ministers was uh, that Jacinda Ardern... um, did the very opposite of what Helen Clark had always urged upon her um, Labour colleagues, which was to under-promise and over-deliver. In other words, do not make grand promises. Make small promises that you can keep. Uh, and if at all possible, deliver more than you promised, and, um, uh, Jacinda uh, as I alluded to earlier um, did the opposite she wildly over promised uh, and then um, proceeded to under deliver uh, in a pretty spectacular fashion so I I, I rather suspect that um, that Chippy will cleave much more to uh, to the uh, under promise and over deliver uh, um, uh, rule of thumb uh, than, than Jacinda did. It. It's also important to remember if we're talking about the continuities between the Clark government uh, and and this government to remember that Helen Clark overrode the Court of Appeal on the foreshore and seabed uh, and thereby um caused the creation of Te Pāte Māori. But Helen Clark was very, very aware of the Māori nationalist agenda, Um, and she made that quite clear when she described her opponents in terms of the foreshore and seabed furore uh, as haters and wreckers. Um, And we should not forget either that Helen Clark point-blank refused to put New Zealand's signature to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, because she saw it as a dagger thrust at the heart of um, New Zealand's um, state sovereignty. Um, So that's part of the Clark heritage as well. And uh, I rather suspect that although Chris Hipkins is of another generation uh, and will not be as clear-cut uh, as Helen Clark was in his um, antipathy to Maori nationalism, I think, nevertheless, he is more amenable than Jacinda was uh, to perhaps, uh, if I may quote the late, great David Longey, um, having a breather and, and maybe having a cup of tea on questions of co-governance.
2: Where does that leave the uh, water reform?
1: Oh, the, yes, the water okay. reforms, well, I I don't know quite how they're going to deal with this because um, Nanaama Huta, um, was really, really ruthless about the way she pushed through uh, the Three Waters legislation at the end of last year, done under urgency and with all kinds of alarms and excursions over things like uh, entrenchment, um, um, much of which had not been run past uh, the Prime Minister or her inner circle, I might add. Um, so now, uh, if you really are intent on stopping free waters, I'm not entirely sure how you do it, short of, of uh, passing a new piece of legislation, uh, hitting the pause button. Um, or it may simply require a series of amendments. Uh, what I think uh, um, Chris Hipkins uh, and his colleagues will, will look at, is something close to what was put forward by the Mayor of Auckland uh, and a number of others, um, which would certainly mm. address the question of New, Zealand, uh, New Zealand's decaying infrastructure vis-à-vis the three waters, that's wastewater, drinking water, uh, and stormwater, um, but minus the co-governance uh, elements because it's the co-government co-governance elements which have really got a lot of people hot and bothered um, i would say that the whole concept of the four entities and uh, and the funding mechanisms attached to them <coughs> are, are pernicious in any case leaving aside the whole question of co-governance i think that entire project needs to be rethought and it needs to um, engage with the New Zealand population far more thoroughly. I think it was flawed from the beginning. Um, Nanaia Mahuta came up with the idea. She she, uh, initiated uh, a a blatantly propagandist uh, advertising campaign in an attempt to soften New Zealanders up for what she was planning, she told everybody that it was going to be voluntary. People would buy in or stay out, and then promptly told them that no, um, it was going to be compulsory. Sorry about that. That was a, a
2: huge mistake, wasn't it?
1: Well, mistake. I don't know. I mean to it tell was them a mistake. that. that... <laughs> but I think. I think. I think it was certainly a political blunder to promise uh, voluntarism and then make it compulsory. Yeah. But then then all of the co-governance uh, elements uh, were piled upon that. Uh, people complained. Uh, their complaints were not heeded. Uh, then there was uh, elections all across the country for local authorities, and um, the proponents, the supporters of co-governance went down in flames, and its opponents... Um, all except Torre Whanau and Wellington. Its opponents were elected. Still, the government didn't take the hint. And then, of course, you got the whole entrenchment debacle, um, which I'm afraid really raised um, serious concerns in the minds of many people at at the allegiance of at least some of the present government to constitutional norms, Um and you know, that only reinforced that sort of underlying concern about the direction of co-governance in New Zealand. Um, so that's, some, that's, that's something which is far and away the most unpopular single policy of this government. Far and away. And it was interesting that, that on, the, on the day after, I think it was, uh, of the local government elections, um, um, Nick Smith, who had just been elected mayor of Nelson, uh, former National Party uh, cabinet minister, he, he told whoever was on the other side of the microphone that if, if Labour didn't move on the Three Waters issue, then it was possessed of a death wish. And, you know, he's a fairly shrewd operator, a politician, been around for many, many years. And I think he was right. And that's why I think it is absolutely imperative for Chris Hipkins to put three waters on hold somehow. Um, And and particularly to uh, allay people's concerns about the whole direction of of co-governance. Because if he doesn't, if he doesn't, then the chances of Labour um, holding on in October, I would say, are close to zero. Um, because what people need to see now is, OK, Jacinda's gone, um, we've got Chippy, he is supposed to be more centrist, he's supposed to be less driven by you know wild ideological uh, crusades. So let's see the evidence. Let's see this really unpopular policy, uh, which which voters have already um, delivered their judgment against in the local government elections. Let's see him stop it. And if he if he's unwilling to stop it, or he's unable to stop it out of fear of what the Maori caucus will do, then. Okay, we'll need a a new party to lead New Zealand. That's going to be the calculation in the minds of enough voters to decide the issue one way or the other. Uh, We're not talking about rusted-on Labour voters or rusted-on national voters here. We're talking on people who voted Labour last time as a thank you to Jacinda, a well-done to Jacinda, um, but who have become alarmed at the direction of things subsequent to the 2020 election, who might just reconsider now that Jacinda's gone and there's a chance for a new path to be followed. Um, but Chris Hipkins has got very little time to to confirm that he is going to take a different path. Very little time. Um, and if he doesn't take a different path, if it's more rhetoric... Um, unsupported by action then I think Labour's chances um, dwindle away
2: What would your guess nothing. be about what he will try to do? Sorry? What's your guess that, about what he will try to do?
1: Oh Attempt. I, I, think, I think he understands that uh, the whole co-governance thing is uh, killing Labour support Uh, I think he understands that the particular uh, baggage around Three Waters, um, which we've already talked about, uh, is really damaging also um, to uh, Labour's electoral chances. So I think understanding that he will want to do something about it. Um, The question is how ruthless is he prepared? To be, um, and he does have a reputation for having um, a steely uh, aspect to his political character. Um, and as I, I alluded to earlier, I mean, he was ruthless in his demolition of David Cunliffe. So he's got he's he's got the cojones uh, to do it, um, and. The only thing that might stay his hand is the prospect of a revolt from his Maori caucus. But if that happens, uh, then I don't think he has any option um, but to say to the Maori caucus, "Okay, so you're not willing to keep this in-house. You're not willing to talk this through and and uh, reach an honourable compromise. Okay, well then we'll slug it out in public. I'll call a snap election. And, a, and it'll be a snap election about co-governance. Make no, make no bones about that. And you will lose. But Labour may win. Because, you know, you don't go broke in New Zealand by playing the race card. You never have, you never will.
2: Is one of the problems with the co-governance has, been, has never been discussed publicly.
1: Well, I think that's the opportunity that I he had, uh, actually. I mean, I, I think, think
2: one of the problems is is there are differences of opinion about supporters of co-governance about what it is within the Labour Party itself.
1: Well, I think Chris Hopkins himself put his finger on it when he said that people don't know what it is and partly uh, this is their own fault because they have paid lip service to um, the Maori caucuses' ideas, but they haven't really studied them and mastered them and and then been in a, in a position to sensibly debate them. Um, so it's partly the fault of, of, of people like Chris Hopkins, and Jacinda and Grant and a whole, whole host of others who have just, Said, "Oh, well, right then, if that's what the Mara caucus wants, well, we'll, we'll go ahead um, uh, without really thinking it, it through." Um, and they—they really—they—they they really need to do that now. And I think that's—that's that's the best line he can put forward. And I honestly, I don't think the Mara caucus are silly enough to threaten a, a full-scale revolt. I really don't. I think Willie Jackson, in particular is a shrewd operator and he doesn't want to see the baby disappearing down the plug hole with the bathwater. So um, I don't think that will happen. Um, but, But he can certainly soften the blow for everybody if he goes to the country and says, look, we can't proceed with radical policies that people, A, don't understand, and B, have not been given a genuine opportunity to debate. And, and over and above all of that, it is inconceivable that constitutional transformation in New Zealand could take place without being ratified by the New Zealand people. Um, and he could say, just look across the Pacific um, to Chile. They had a constituent assembly, uh, which came up with a new constitution, very radical constitution. Um, it was put to the Chilean people. It didn't get the necessary number of votes, so it's back to square one. And that's a, that was a, an object lesson, <clears throat> and, and what can happen if if you don't win the arguments before before you make the changes. Uh, and I think virtually everyone in New Zealand apart from the hard line <clears throat> uh, on, on on both sides, I suppose, would say, actually, new Prime Minister Hipkins, you're, you're absolutely right. Let us push the pause button until the debate has been had, until we know what we're talking about, until this whole thing is defined you know, saying, oh, it's a bit like the Waikato River um, uh, Authority, or it's a bit like what happened in the Uruwea National Park with the Tuhoi people, I mean, that is not a definition. And, you know, I heard an Auckland academic on the radio this morning um, asked to come on and tell New Zealand what co-governance was about. She couldn't do it, or she wouldn't do it, one of the two. And you know, if someone who has devoted her entire academic life to the subject of indigenous rights cannot clearly um, explain co-governance, then why on earth are we changing all our laws in that direction? It is, it's not a good thing for a government to do. And I think if Chris Hipkins was to come out and say that clearly, he would be enormously popular, and Labour's chances of re-election would be vastly improved.
2: Uh, were you surprised at uh, his choice of deputy leader of Carmel Saponia over Kerry Allen?
1: Um, and no, sh- and, no uh, I what- wasn't the least bit surprised, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, uh, Carmel Cipollone, um is a close ally of Chris Hipkins. Indeed, she's, she's been a close ally of, of the Troika, um, Jacinda um, uh, Grant and, and Chris. Uh, she also came in in 2008, and she has been a very um, safe pair of hands in what can be a very volatile portfolio, social welfare, she has delivered gains, um, but she has also um, disappointed many by by not uh, carrying through the recommendations of the um, uh, the expert group that uh, that uh, presented a report on on reforming social welfare. Um, she's also you know maintained, uh, a punitive uh, response to many um, aspects of life on welfare, um, perhaps not as as many as uh, were there under the previous national government, but still, um, life on, on on a benefit is is not a bed of roses, um, and Carmel Sepuloni hasn't made made it all that more comfortable. She has increased um, benefits and and done a number of things, which are good, but um, uh, a a radical reformer, she is not. Um, Kitty Allen, on the other hand, um, is, um, well, what's a polite way of saying this? Um, She has led a colourful life, shall we say, a colourful life. And um, colourful lives in this day and age, particularly in the age of social media, uh, are not always an asset politically. Um, so uh, I think the, the decision was made pretty early on that while she may rise up through the ranks in terms of cabinet, she, she wasn't going to be made um, Deputy Prime Minister.
2: Okay. What? We have a, about six minutes left, so it's some time to talk about this. Why have so called centre left social democratic governments and parties become so isolated from the people they supposedly represent?
1: Well, can you really say that in New Zealand? Um, we had nine years of uh, a social democratic government under under Helen uh, Clark, and then we had um, a fairly moderate um, conservative government, National Party government, under John Key, who enraged many of his uh, National Party uh, brethren and sistren by um, following what they called labor light policies. And we've just had five years of another... Um, social democratic uh, regime, which did the impossible. It won an absolute majority of the votes under a mixed member proportional electoral system. So I'm not quite sure whether it's all that isolated from the people. I mean, even now, um, after all of the drama of the last couple of years, um, it's still um, within you know, striking distance of winning the next election in an MNP, uh way, not, not, not like 2020 where it won just over 50% of the vote, but at 32, 33% with the Greens on 10 and the Maori Party, maybe you know, getting up there to two or three. It's still a competitive race. Um, so I'm not not, not entirely sure
2: when Um, you were talking about the occupation of parliament grounds you said that they were mostly working class people from the provinces well a a great many many of
1: them were and you also but but, but, but dear dear, me dear me Marvin the people who were in parliament grounds I don't think were all that representative of the rest of New Zealand well
2: I'm not suggesting that but I'm suggesting they're they're the people that feel left behind. They're the kind of people that voted Trump in.
1: Well, that's and true. Brexit.
2: That's true. And they're that's also true. the fact that we still have a low wage economy. We still have um, it's we still have many, many people who can't afford to ever own a home. And well, a yes, but that's a, that's,
1: that's 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 a feature of the nature of our economy um, i guess and what i'm saying of, of the of the economic policies uh, which are deemed now uh, acceptable across virtually the whole planet
2: i'm not sure they uh, are that that popular among the working class they they put <clears> up with sometimes
1: well well see the problem marvin is that the working class that you and i um, grew up Um, studying um, doesn't any longer exist in a country like New Zealand. I mean, when you and I were cutting our teeth in the Labour Party, there were still thousands of workers employed um, assembling cars. There were still thousands of workers um, employed every season in a multitude of freezing works. I mean, there was a large blue-collar chunk of society and a political party uh, dedicated to representing them. Well, those freezing works are shut mm-hmm. down. Those car okay. I'm um, afraid I have are, to sh- all...
2: I'm afraid I have to shut us down now.
1: Oh, well, I'm sorry. But, but the, 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 just a quick sum up uh, then, Marvin. The world, uh, in the West anyway, changed. The working class changed, and therefore the parties of the working class changed. Um, if there's going to be a party of the working class, it'll emerge in China and India and Brazil long before it, it, it returns here to New Zealand.
2: OK, thanks a lot for coming on,
0: Chris.
1: Always a pleasure, Marvin,
0: always. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.